Welcome in to episode one of All In With Adam. Um, I have had to re-record this episode. I didn't think I was going to have to do that. I already recorded this episode, and I decided to delete it and record it again. And it's probably not the wisest thing for me to tell you that, but um, there's a reason that I did that. Uh, I I felt so on fire to do this episode, to share with you a very specific story that I have to share with you today. Um, I felt so motivated to do that, that I think I rushed. I rushed a lot. But it felt good to lean into a a new project so heavily. Um, But the thing is, I want to get to know you guys in in an organic way. And the first time I recorded this episode, you know, this story is so, so powerful, and I was so excited to share it, that it felt overwhelming in a way. And to many of you, you will still feel that this episode is overwhelming. But just how if you have a, a new friendship and you're getting to know somebody, you would want to sort of have somewhat of a measured, strategic approach, I suppose, in allowing someone to get to know you. And so I felt like I rushed. I felt like I overshared. Um, I felt like I touched on topics that I didn't have time to fully explain or explore. And I, shit, I suppose with cancel culture, that's a dangerous thing to do in some ways, depending on what the view might be. So I felt like, let's slow down a little bit. Now, the story that I have to share with you today, there's a whole lot of context there. I'm going to have to provide a whole lot of context uh, for the story to make any sense. And in doing that, you will get to know a a lot of things about me um, that I've certainly never shared with the internet before. So I'm excited for that part. And the reality is, I don't want to imply that the half a million people who have followed me or who follow me now on my drum platforms don't know me. Because that's not, not totally true. But the reality is that drums have always been a smaller percentage of who I am, right? It's not the whole story. I hope if you're a drummer and you identify as a drummer, that knowing that about you does not mean that I know who you are, at least not entirely. I hope that's not the case. So for me, looking back, even at its peak, when I was the most on fire for being a drummer and playing drums and on fire for online education, a little context for those who don't know who I am at all. I began playing drums when I was 12 years old. I taught and toured and did bands and stuff professionally for a few years. Um, Then I transitioned into full-time teaching. In 2013, I transitioned uh, online and became a YouTube drum teacher. And then I, I founded an online education company, which is how I make my living to this day. And it's a very successful one. But even at at its peak, my relationship to drums and drumming and teaching the drums, you know, maybe that made up 10% or 15% of my entire identity, it has just never been the only thing that I'm interested in at any point in time. Uh, Now, even during the course of eight or 12 hour drum working days, working in this studio or in the last one, I don't know, man, I don't know how else to explain it. It's, It's not the whole story of who I am. And I think for a lot of people, when you build a relationship with a YouTuber, especially over a longer period of time, um, you only see them through the prism of the thing that is the theme of that channel, right? If it's a, let's say you watch like a car mechanics YouTube channel, you just know that guy is the mechanic. And in reality, he may have many other hobbies and interests and beliefs about the world, but that guy doesn't want to burden you with that because the channel, the platform that he communicates to you through um, has a theme. And this is something that has made me feel more and more, I guess trapped is the right word, especially as an educator who's passionate about, um, younger generations, young men specifically, you know, in that age range of high school and college, 
man, if the only things I'm allowed to tell you have to be passed through this drum filter, oh, it has become so frustrating. It has become really frustrating in recent years. And especially over this year, as we've had these different topics and and heavier things come up, I want to get introspective with you. I want to share with you um, a lot of things that I think could be helpful or just expand my thoughts, right? And I can only take that so far on these drum platforms that I've created. So in many ways, this is the these are the motivating factors that have led me to do this podcast. I just have other things to say. And I don't ever want to imply when I say things like, my drum fans over the last 10 years or followers, subscribers, whatever we want to title that group. You know, I don't want to imply that you don't know me at all because I have never been inauthentic on my drum platforms. I have never lied. Um, I've never said things that were not a representation of me and my beliefs. But it's always just a portion and a pretty small portion at that. So in a lot of ways, I do feel like you guys don't really know me. And I want to get to know you. But we're going to have to take our time here because I think I have a lot of stuff to unpack. So the story that I have to share with you today centers around this concept of ego. And, you know, I've, I've experienced what it's like to, to be on both sides of having an ego problem, to have self-confidence issues, to not believe that you're good enough, whether it's via imposter syndrome, whether it's um, lacking in the category of self-love and self-care, or on the other side of that spectrum, you know, hating yourself. Not wanting to wake up and and do anything, because what's the point? Um, Not seeing value in yourself and your life. I've been on both sides of that spectrum before. But I can tell you that something does happen when you have hundreds of thousands of people who support what you do. You know, the ego begins to build up, and not always in the best way. Um, Anybody who has a large following that tells you that it has not impacted their ego in a positive way, that it has built the ego up, is lying. That's that is what happens when you have um, tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, and I imagine you know millions of people um, who just, in a weird way, like like blindly support what you do. So I've had to work on that more in recent years. The the overconfidence that comes with having access to this crazy amount of people who give you constant approval for almost everything that you do, as long as you're not doing something fucking crazy. So. There was a situation recently that came up that threatened my ego in a way that I really, really disliked. So I posted a video on YouTube on my drum platforms about sort of the some changes that I see in the drum industry. And it's not just the drum industry, it's the it's the world, certainly. It changes where people are shifting away from more serious content, educational content, insightful content, and they're shifting towards um, escapism. A lot of that is rooted in uh, entertainment or amusement-based content. And as someone who has always been, uh, air quotes, a, a serious content creator, I dislike this shift. I dislike it a lot. It scares me for young men specifically that you would be gravitating towards escapism instead of leaning into the self-discipline required when you have to lean into educational content, right? And take on a new skill or take on a new craft. That is harder. It's a lot harder to do. And I worry sometimes that people are leaning away from that because life is hard in itself. And people don't want the heaviness that comes with educational content, which is what I create. That's what I put out and always have. So that scares me a little bit, and I made a video about this, sort of illustrating what what changes are happening and how I perceive them. You know, overwhelmingly, the response to that video was good, but there there was one sentiment that, you know, maybe somewhere between five and ten people expressed in the comment section of that video. And the sentiment was, 
You know, I'm sorry your business is failing. And that is not what I said, but it threatened my ego to hear that. Because the reality is, I know that I have created one of the most successful online drum education platforms in existence. I'm not saying that my website and my drum school is the greatest one of of all of them, but it's up there. I certainly hope it is because I have invested, you know, all of my 20s. My 20s are gone. I gave it to the drum industry. And I gave it to this platform that I've created, an educational website effectively. And I'm incredibly proud of it. It's the only thing I've done with the last 10 years of my life. I don't say only thing I've done, but professionally, I think it is. It's how I make my entire living. And I do very well from that website. And so to hear people you know, make this assumption that I'm actually doing very bad, I had people offer to send me money, right? That, that's how... That's what they took away from this one particular video where I described uh, a lot of my views and metrics have been declining. They sort of concluded that that must mean that I don't have any money and that that was very sad. And that is not true, but man, it touched my ego in a way that felt really, really uncomfortable. I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to make statements like, um, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? in this industry. I've been a player in this industry for a very, very long time. And that was a very gross feeling. I didn't like feeling that way. That felt like my ego had been woken up in a in a way that I wasn't happy with at all. Because I know, of course, that it would be far wiser to lean into a sentiment of, I don't ever need to say those things because I know who I am and I know my value, but it made me feel insecure. It made me feel like I wanted to express those things. And I I didn't say those things. I wouldn't allow myself to type those words, but I had the thoughts. I had those thoughts. It made me, it made me feel threatened, but I didn't like that. I think that felt, it came from a very gross place inside of me. Now I have a move. Whenever the ego flares up, and that move is to take magic mushrooms. Before we get into mushrooms specifically, I think I need to provide you with a little bit of context and background on my perspective on mind-altering substances, all drugs in general. I think it's gonna be really helpful. So for me, drugs have always been void of morality in that these chemical compounds, these substances, don't come with a latitude and longitude on like the moral geography of the world. When you pick a drug, a random drug, let's say, you have a relationship to that drug if it's one that you've chosen to put in your body or involve in your life in some way. You now have a relationship with that drug. And some relationships are good and manageable and sustainable, and some are not. Some are very, very bad, but this is very person to person. And every drug will be different for every person. I think the worst thing that we can do is take a specific drug and blanket it or label it uh, with some type of morality. I do not think that's how this works. It's not how it's worked in my life experience at all. And yes, this applies to drugs like you could take cocaine or take heroin or um, the bad drugs, right? Um, But I don't believe in putting a, a moral label on them and saying this one is good, this one is bad. Undoubtedly, you can put them on a scale of um, heaviness or of of potential danger. You could certainly do that, but not of morality. This is not how I see mind-altering substances. And ever since I was very young, I always had an attraction to drugs in general, to altering my state of mind to perceive the world differently. It felt 
early on, it certainly felt like escapism. And to give you background here, I think I started smoking weed at age 13, maybe 12. Way too young. Not recommended. Don't fucking do that. That was way too young. And at the time, of course, that was rooted in escapism. And it was partying, right? It was partying. It was fun. But I think there's a huge line that people need to differentiate here. And this is a line that I didn't draw until I became much older. Um, The line between partying and getting fucked up and altering your state of consciousness for another reason. Self-improvement being one of the biggest of all of those reasons. And... I was certainly made to feel guilty and have a little bit of shame growing up in having a desire to alter my state of consciousness. And that was wrong. I don't plan to raise my kids that way, and that's not a message that I would give to a young man necessarily, that the desire to alter your state of consciousness um, is inherently bad. I do not believe that at all. So I started smoking weed at age 12 or 13, Undoubtedly for the wrong reasons, but there were there was some good that came from that, I suppose. Uh, certainly the, the social lubricant or the social activity of smoking with your friends was very valuable to me all through late middle school and into high school. I was a huge stoner kid. It's just what I did. By the time I was maybe 16 or 17, uh, I began drinking a bit more. There were many red flags, many red flags that I was having a problem with my relationship to alcohol. I don't put that on alcohol. I put that on my relationship to alcohol and my inability to manage that relationship. I was simply too young to know what I was dealing with. And another analogy I like to use when I explain how I perceive human relationships to mind-altering substances, I look at all drugs as though they are tools. And all tools have a different function. But some, you have to learn how to use them. And so if pot is a flathead screwdriver, well... You should be careful with this. You can stab yourself in the eye, I suppose. You can (laughs) slit the screwdriver and poke a hole in your hand. There there are some things that you could do wrong with this tool. But for the most part, if a 13-year-old has a a flathead screwdriver, it's not going to go horribly wrong. It's not going to just inherently cut your hand off. It's not that particularly dangerous of a tool. But with that said, I don't recommend that you start using tools when you're in middle school necessarily. There is still some danger here. And you need to be shown how to use these things. As you get into other tools, more dangerous ones, you know, we could call cocaine a jackhammer. Listen, dude, this is a dangerous tool. It is not without function. And it's not a tool that nobody can ever use ever. Because it it just doesn't mean that you're just going to blow your life up or smash your foot into a thousand pieces because it's a jackhammer. It doesn't necessarily mean that, I don't think. Um, But it requires... A lot of knowledge going in. It just does. Sorry, I had to mute my computer there. Rookie mistake. Uh, So all all drugs are tools. And this is how I perceive them. Each tool you have to learn how to use. That could mean that you have to have someone show you how to use that tool. And with alcohol, nobody ever showed me how to use that tool. I went in untrained, not knowing what the hell I was doing. And I had signs at age... 15, 16, 17, 18, that drinking was problematic for me. And I came from, uh, a lot of my mom's brothers were alcoholics. There was undoubtedly a history of alcoholism in my family. And I knew that, but I was 15, so good fucking luck telling that to a 15-year-old. I didn't care. That didn't mean anything to me at all. And, you know, it is certainly debatable to what degree alcoholism is hereditary. 
Um, and I can tell you what, what I've concluded, there's a little more to this history of alcoholism here. You know, what, what I've learned over the years is that at the very least, at the very least, your predisposition to having problems with drinking, to having a bad relationship with alcohol, that certainly seems to be hereditary. I don't know if we can call alcoholism a a disease and then end that conversation completely. It's a pretty nuanced conversation that I think we should have another day. But your predisposition to having problems with your relationship to alcohol, that does seem to be hereditary. At least I've certainly experienced that in my life because my relationship to alcohol was just bad from the beginning. It was never good. It was never measured. It was never healthy. It was never balanced. It was always bad. It just started off on the wrong foot and continued that way. And so I actually took a couple years off drinking when I was in college. So 18, 19, 20, around that range, I didn't really drink. Really, let's just grant, that was just 18 and part of being 19. That was it, maybe a year and a half or so. By the time I was 20, I was drinking again heavily. And drinking alone was something I did all the time. I drank alone. And if I ever do drink again, that will undoubtedly be one of the rules that I have to, to have here is... You can't, I can't do that. That's, that's just not a healthy thing to do, almost for anybody. It's a shitty way to use that tool. And I didn't know this. So I drank alone a lot. And I toured around in um, this one particular band I was in. We played tons of shows. Getting drunk was part of the process. Uh, it, was, it was part of going to work. And so I was in this party phase, purely escapism, totally misusing the tool that is alcohol. I wasn't interested in doing anything else. I was just getting fucked up, and that's all I was doing for several years. And before I turned 22, I went to rehab. I went to rehab specifically for alcohol because I was having uh, some seizures. There were many other red flags, like things that had happened that let me know this problem was getting more and more serious. But what scared me the most was how functional of an alcoholic that I was. I was very good at maintaining my work life, whether it was teaching drum lessons or playing shows with um, this band that I was in. I was really good at maintaining that while also drinking heavily, heavily, every single night, oftentimes blacking out. Uh, the earlier I could get alcohol in my body, the better. And if I didn't get alcohol in my body, before 6 or 7 p.m., I began to feel physical withdrawal symptoms. And that lasted for several months. And, and this got so scary that eventually I began to entertain this idea that I might need help here. That I think I'm maintaining this in a way where I can just keep doing this. And I think it gets scarier and scarier. It gets worse and worse and worse. And I chose to go to rehab. Now, rehab is a story for another day. But there are, there's some specific things you need to know here. Um, some context that's going to make this this other story make a little bit more sense. So I went to rehab in, in Utah. I went there for three months. And I went to a 12-step rehab, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous, a 12-step program, is effectively Christianity. It's Christianity, but you get to fill in the blank with what you believe God to be. And it is notoriously very effective. There are millions of people who adhere to a 12-step program and will tell you um, how much it has benefited their life. But the thing is, I was raised as a Christian. And part of my alcoholism, the matching graph of how heavy my drinking got, what matched that graph um, was this existential crisis that I was going through. I had gone through a really bad breakup in my early 20s. Man, I was... I was so 
desperate for help and that my life felt like it wasn't going very well, that I began to pray. I prayed more than I ever had before. And I had grown up a Christian, but I really leaned into um, my Christianity and my faith at that time in my life because I had had this breakup. You know, drinking was becoming very problematic for me. And I was the kind of person for quite a while, you know, I would I would get fucked up on Saturday and be in church on Sunday trying to seek some sort of redemption for the things I had done that weekend. So there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of chaos in that because I was adhering to one belief but not really living that way in, in for the rest of the week, you know. It was it was chaotic. It was ironic in many ways. And this led to an existential crisis because I began feeling like I can't call myself a Christian anymore um, because Christianity isn't doing isn't doing it for me. I'm trying to lean into this, but I'm getting nothing back. And of course, there are some ironies that I'm also partying the whole time. Um, so of course, this isn't working very well. But I felt in many ways that as these external circumstances had sort of weighed down on me, whether it was drinking and partying and the, and the weight of that lifestyle, uh, this relationship that had failed, I had been with a girl for about a year and that fell apart, it really just drove me into this existential crisis where I could no longer call myself a Christian. Now the problem is that has a, that has a serious weight to it because when you are raised as a Christian or any belief, systematic belief that gives you all of these answers to the harder questions in life, when you're raised that way, Man, it feels like you have these stilts, like a frame of a house that props you up. And when you begin to remove those stilts, you find out that you don't really know who you are. This was my experience. As Christianity and my faith began to crumble underneath me, I realized that I did not know who I was at all. That I wasn't actually that confident. That I didn't actually have any of the answers to all of the hard questions in life. And this led me to an existential crisis where I didn't have, oh, Jesus, I mean, I didn't have a wheel to live, um, didn't have a relationship with God that I thought I had had for many years. That crumbled. That became my imaginary friend. And I felt alone. I felt incredibly vulnerable. And I almost drank myself to death in attempting to medicate um, this condition that I was in. That's how bad I felt. And I abused myself to deal with it. And it got so bad, I entered rehab. And then I was confronted with Alcoholics Anonymous, or a 12-step program. And it required, anybody who's done AA knows this, it required faith in a higher power. But, goddamn, was I not ready for that. I wasn't ready for that at all. It didn't work. Alcoholics Anonymous did not work for me for one reason or another. I just rejected this whole premise that I wasn't in control. I went hardcore atheist to where there is no spirituality. None of this is real. I've been lied to about all of it. And so you don't get to tell me that there's some higher power that's going to help me do this. Fuck that there's a higher power. It's all on me. That's why I'm here. It's why I drank in the first place, because I had realized that it was all on me and rejected this belief system that told me something else was in control. And then you go to AA and they say, well, you have to surrender and give up control to this other thing. And I said, no, I just did that. I just did that. And it's why I want to die. It's why I put all this alcohol in my body, because I hate how that feels. We can explore that whole concept another day, but at least at the time, you know, take that for what it is. Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work for me. Just didn't work. 
So the context that you need to take away from this before I tell you the main story today is that I was raised as a Christian and I fully rejected that um, at this point in my life, in my early 20s, around age 21. I don't even think I made it to 22. That's how quickly alcoholism sort of engulfed my entire life. But I was raised as a Christian. I had this existential crisis and rejected it entirely. That landed me in rehab, or at least alcoholism landed me in rehab. Um, and then when I exited rehab, I had this I had this bitterness towards Christianity because the way I perceived it was I had been lied to. I had been given a systematic belief that I completely rejected and believed to be false. That was the reason that I had this drinking problem. Had I have not been given a false belief system, I don't think I would have ended up there. That was what I believed and what I told myself. And so as I sort of found some stability out of rehab, once I had gotten out, I went for three months, and I got out before I was even 22, but I began to find some stability in what I believed, but it was very hardened. You know, I went hardcore atheist is where I went. There was no spirituality, there was no higher power, I'm in full control of my life, we are animals, that is everything you need to know about the world, and everyone who believes something different is simply behind me, in that I figured this out and they just haven't figured it out yet. Now that is a very hardened belief, one that I have softened in recent years, for sure. You know, as I've gotten older, I've leaned a little bit more into agnosticism in that I don't know. I don't have the answers. Saying that, for example, there is no God, a theist, you, you believe there is no God whatsoever, that always that began to feel a little bit like the same level of confidence that Christians have. Oh, you just know then, huh? You just know that you know that you know. That felt foolish in the same way that being a Christian felt foolish. So I leaned a little bit more towards the agnostic side, where I don't know and I don't think you know either. And in many ways, I think that is still a much healthier way um, to approach whatever belief system that you want to take on, you know, to sort of reject the concept of absolute truth uh, and get a little bit more comfort in the unknown, what you don't know. Uh, maybe you could learn something one day. Anyway, we're not going down that philosophical wormhole today, but these are things that you need to know before I get you into this mushroom story. So let's make a hard pivot to the mushroom story. So psychedelics to me, in this tool analogy, they've always been one of the most useful tools, not even close really, because yes, you could find a function for alcohol, a use for it, like a tool. You could do that to cocaine, you could do that to meth, you could do that to ecstasy. You could find functions of all of these drugs where there's some reason or a tangible benefit that you might get from putting this substance in your body if you're actually trying to do something, if it's not rooted in pure escapism and partying. With psychedelics, I am not a fan of using them recreationally in that you're, you're putting that substance in your body to have fun. And this applies to psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, lysergic acid, which is LSD, mescaline, peyote, any of the, the true psychedelics. They have a very, they have a seriousness to them. At least this is my relationship to these drugs. They're very serious. And they're drugs that, that require a lot of respect, a whole lot of respect. I, Again, not a fan of taking those things recreationally at all. It's not a party drug. It is to some people, but that's not what, my relationship to those drugs is not that. It is not rooted in escapism and partying and getting fucked up and seeing cool stuff, man. It, none of that. I perceive them to be incredibly helpful tools when it comes to being introspective and to assessing your own life by tapping in or interfacing with this external consciousness. I don't claim to know what that external consciousness is, the thing that you interface with when you take magic mushrooms or LSD or any other psychedelic. 
DMT. I don't claim to know what that thing is. Many people do. There are many ideas, fascinating ideas, about what this external consciousness is that you interface with when you take those drugs. Um, many people describe it as the higher self. Many people would describe it as, well, it depends on the culture, right? Uh, my favorite is, is ancient Hispanic cultures, Mexican cultures, will call it uh, the wise children. That's who you're interfacing with because this thing that you seem to receive messages from it's very, it's profoundly wise, but it is also very silly, very youthful, very playful. Um, so the wise children, that's who it feels like I'm interfacing with when I take psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, magic mushrooms. It is very playful, but also profoundly wise. Now, if you're not a, um, a psychedelic adventurer, you would likely call that voice, that consciousness, you would likely say that that is completely internal. It's in my own head, or if you take it, it would be within your own head. And maybe that's the case. Maybe what you're interfacing with is a higher self. I don't know. I don't make any claims to fill in the blank there and tell you what it is you're interfacing with when you enter the psychedelic realm. Um, but fuck, dude, it is something. The only people that say there's nothing there, that this is all, you know, colors and shapes in your head. The only people who ever say things like that are people who have never taken psychedelics. So in, in many ways, I think those beliefs are rooted in ignorance. You are interfacing with something, something that is profoundly powerful and exists outside of space and time. Definitions beyond that, in my mind, are all just good guesses, right? That's what I can tell you there. But there is some sort of, um, people describe it as a plant intelligence, right? You get a, a profound wisdom um, when you seek to be introspective and to learn from a psychedelic experience. And so back to this ego concept, my ego felt like it had flared up in a way that I did not like, in that I felt threatened and I had to defend myself to these people who left comments that made the assumption that my business was failing, which it was not. So I decided to take mushrooms about it. And I'm a huge believer in setting an intention when you take mushrooms, or any psychedelic really. If the intention is to party, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan, it feels disrespectful. But my intention was to um, assess my ego and to get some sort of insight as to why my ego had flared up here. Why do I feel the need to defend myself? Where does that come from and what can I do to improve myself in that category? Let me paint the picture for you. This was a Tuesday at 11 a.m. and I had mushroom tea. Now, there's a couple things I gotta set up before I tell you exactly what happened in this experience. First of all, tea is known to hit a bit faster because you're not breaking down the fibers of actual mushrooms. The psilocybin or the active compound inside of the magic mushrooms has been extracted and put into a liquid form which your body can process and metabolize much faster. So that's one thing you need to know. The other thing you need to know is that for almost the last year, nine or 10 months, I've been on the carnivore diet, which is exclusively animal products. That is a conversation and a whole podcast for another day. We'll get into that one down the road. That's another piece that you need to know, that I was on the carnivore diet. And one thing people experience very commonly on this diet is that the way your body metabolizes external substances is dramatically impacted. It's really common that people will report they'll be on the carnivore diet for a month or for six weeks. And then they go and they have uh, a glass of wine with dinner and they completely black out and they wake up the next day and don't know what happened. Your sensitivity 
to external substances that get processed and metabolized through your stomach and through your liver, it seems to just go through the roof, right? <clears throat> so that's another element you need to know. Took tea, and I'm on a diet that is notorious um, for increasing your metabolic sensitivity to things that you consume orally that pass through your stomach and into your bloodstream that way. And of course, the third element here is that I was fasting. I chose to not eat anything um, on this particular Tuesday. I didn't eat anything before I took this tea. So those three pieces are very important to understanding what happened here. Um, it was tea, which absorbs faster. I'm on a diet, which is notorious for speeding up your metabolism, letting your body process things very quickly. Your sensitivity goes through the roof. And I didn't have any food in my stomach, which universally makes all things you consume orally hit a little bit harder. Advil will hit harder on an empty stomach, uh, or at least hit you faster, right? So with those three things in mind, let's get into this bitch. So I drank this tea. It was supposed to be two grams was in this jar of tea that I had. I had fully planned to finish the jar because two grams is not an overwhelmingly intense trip. Really three and a half grams um, would be considered like a full send in the mushroom world. Uh, but I didn't really want that. I wanted to keep one foot in reality and the other foot sort of in the mushroom world, which is normally how I prefer to trip. I don't necessarily like you know, talking to aliens right off the bat. Um, it, it's just so, so intense that sometimes it's nice to keep one foot in reality. So that was the plan. Now I drank half of this jar of tea and I did not finish the other half because I couldn't. It was that intense. So I'm one gram in, 15 minutes I've been drinking this tea. And I began to feel a, a sense of confusion come over me. I had a really hard time settling my mind, which is a very important thing to keep your attention on in a psychedelic experience, to keep your mind settled, to keep, to keep yourself calm, to maintain control of your breath. Um, these are great things to focus on. And so I was attempting to settle my mind, to control my breath, to focus, to sort of bring my thoughts within and not allow this sort of wonky chaos to overwhelm me. But I was having a really hard time with that. The chaos that is this experience, man, it was, it was really rough. And like a lot of drugs, there is a come up period. And so that's what I thought was happening here. This is a, a turbulent entry into the realm where I'm going. And I knew right away that this was not gonna be a, a light trip. This is not that kind of feeling. We are traveling somewhere and we're gonna have to buckle up for this ride because I didn't think this ride was gonna be that crazy. But it's feeling like it's gonna get pretty crazy. And so I began having trouble hearing, I began having trouble seeing, um, extreme color distortions, not manipulations of things. It wasn't like I was seeing anything that wasn't there. There was really none of that classic breathing that psilocybin will give to you. It was none of that. It was more like, like glitchy, like the world would turn black and white and like staticky in a way, a total lack of clarity um, in my vision. Auditory distortions, things didn't sound how they were supposed to. And the first time I've ever experienced this from psychedelics, there was like a delay. Like I would walk 10 feet and I would be blind and deaf while walking that 10 feet. And then like a fast forwarded glitchy movie would play of what just happened five seconds ago. Like it was extremely confusing and I was totally terrified, totally terrified of what was happening. I have never had an experience like this from any psychedelic before. And so I'm trying to process and understand, you know, what exactly is happening here? Um, and I keep telling myself, this must be a come up. This is not what a mushroom trip is like. I've been in this world many times, this ain't it. But 
something serious is happening here and my body is really, really struggling to to deal with this come up. I'm having trouble breathing, I'm having trouble seeing, I'm very scared. But of course, having a good amount of experience with psychedelics, I, I certainly knew that you have to tell yourself the right things here. You have to accept this experience for what it is. Fighting in any capacity does not serve you. To try and take a swing at psychedelics, one, you're gonna miss, and two, they will hit you back way harder. It is not an option that's on the table. It doesn't serve you to do that in any capacity. So I'm trying to be very open to this experience and accepting of this, as scared as I am. I fully understand that you cannot, you gotta lean in. You gotta lean into whatever this is. You, you can't fight it, right? We'll get into that a little bit, a little bit more. So as I'm trying to be open and accepting and in, in one way or another surrender to this experience, I feel like I'm gonna throw up, which is pretty common on magic mushrooms. Uh, you know, I, I, honestly, this is my first time doing tea, so I didn't expect to throw up because I'm not breaking down the, uh, the fungus or the fibrous, you know, actual mushrooms. Um, so I, I was really surprised, but I said, hey man, if I'm gonna throw up, I'm gonna throw up. This is fine, because I would love to downgrade this experience right now. <laughs> this is fucking crazy. And so as this deep, perpetual confusion came over me, this chaotic mental state where I have very little control over my being, um, I decided I need to go in the backyard and get some fresh air, because holy shit, am I not prepared for whatever this is. And maybe I can throw up and maybe that'll help. So I stumbled my way into the backyard. I remember my knees hitting the dirt, my hands hitting the grass, and then I just wake up. I wake up with my face down in the grass on my stomach. I'm covered in dirt on my back and my chest and my face and my legs like I had been rolling around in the dirt. Now I'll tell you what happened here, though I didn't know this at the time. Um, I had lost consciousness and convulsed in my own backyard. I only know this because I have a lot of security cameras. Um, and I watched the security cameras later that night, long after this experience had ended. And so there's a couple things that could have happened there. This is not really that common on, on psilocybin. You can find or stories online of people who have had this kind of thing happen, but it is not common at all. It was either an extreme blood sugar drop um, or quite literally, I had forgotten how to breathe. That's the thing that happens on really, really intense psychedelic trips. The good news is, forgetting how to breathe, or even if you just sat in a chair and chose not to breathe, this is not actually dangerous in that when you lose consciousness, your body has an autopilot mode where you just begin to breathe again. That's what will happen 100% of the time if you don't breathe or you can't control your breath or you choose to stop breathing for some reason, your body knows what to do that is not actually dangerous. Now, of course, the dangerous element is losing consciousness physically, like where you are, but fortunately, I had felt faint enough and, and ill enough that I had chosen to sort of get down close to the ground. So in hindsight watching, I just sort of collapsed to the side a little bit. So physically, I was, I was very safe, but still scary. What in the fuck is that? That is not part of taking magic mushrooms. But of course, I knew while all of this was happening, that uh, this is an intense ride we're going on. This is a serious fucking ride and not one that I thought I signed up for. And so I wake up, my calves are sore from having convulsed a bit. My forearms are sore from having locked up. And I just kind of felt like I need to get back inside because obviously being 
this is 11.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, rolling around in your backyard, tripping balls is probably not the way to do it. So, you know, I said, let, let me get inside here. So I go inside, I hop in the shower, still utter chaos, mental chaos, perpetual confusion, just a fucking tornado in my mind. And very scary, very scary. But of course, I'm again, I'm repeating these things to myself. Surrender to this experience. This is okay. There's no fight coming from me. I am okay with what this is. And if there's a message here, if there's something I'm going to learn about the ego, maybe I don't get to fucking know what that is right now. I don't think I get to decode what this experience is at the moment. I think that's going to happen later. But for now, I need to metaphorically survive whatever the hell is going on here. So that was my goal. Just survive this thing. Not physically, I wasn't scared for my life, but survive as in try try to find a sense of stability, try and find a sense of peace so I can try to not get fucking traumatized, right? So I get in the shower, it does not help. Cold water, I wash off all this dirt that was all over me from rolling around in the dirt while I was unconscious. And then I just sort of decide, you know, I need to lock myself in a bedroom. No phone, nothing. I just need to be in a bed in a safe place and allow this to be whatever it is. And so I do that. I go into the room, um, shut the door, no phone, and I just buckle up. I'm going on a ride that I don't want to be on. This isn't the ride I signed up for. (laughs) But there were so many phrases that I told myself, and I'm really grateful for all of my psychedelic experience in that I know sort of what to do in a situation like this. I was telling myself things like, you don't get the trip you want, but you get the trip that you need. This is not the trip that I wanted, but perhaps it is the trip that I need. I know that sounds crazy to people who aren't familiar with psychedelics, but trust me, that sentiment serves you better than fighting. Fighting doesn't serve you in a scenario like this. A trip gone wrong, something that is overwhelming, something that is scary, very frightening to you, leaning into that experience and being open to feeling those feelings instead of trying to fight them or escape them, oh, God damn, you will lose. You will lose every time if you try and fight that battle. You cannot win. No one has ever won. You just get the shit beaten out of you. So I leaned in to this psychological beating, which lasted for the next two hours. And I wish I had any sense of clarity to really describe to you exactly what those two hours were like. But if I were to tell you stories right now, or let's say show you pictures of disgusting, horrible things, imagery, like child rape, or the murder of your parents, or you name the disgusting, horrible, evil thing that you could envision, I did not see those things. There was no imagery, there was no hallucinations, there was no movie in my mind, as there oftentimes is with psilocybin. That is not what happened. It was more so the sentiments, the feelings that would come up from seeing or thinking about those types of imagery. That is what I felt. I felt ugliness. I felt disgust. I felt darkness. But I couldn't tie it to, I couldn't tie it to an event or an image or a specific thought or a context. It was just those feelings. That was it. Really vague and hard to describe and very confusing, deeply confusing. And I had to sit with that for two hours, a psychological beating, intensely trying to catch my breath, very short of breath, very scary. The thought of settling my mind was so impossibly distant. I just couldn't settle my mind at all, at all. Just chaos. 
And again, I'm just doing my best to not condemn the experience, knowing full well that that will only make this worse. So I'm trying to lean into this ass whooping. And it is hard, man. It is really, really hard. I would have cried if I could conceptualize what crying even was. It was more just, you know, (gasps) that was me in a fetal position for two hours. It fucking sucked. And I had this thought two hours in to this horrendous experience. I almost was joking with myself in one of these little moments of clarity, because obviously, you know, psychedelics are very wavy. It's not the same experience every moment the whole time. There are ups and downs within the experience of intensity, of horror. And keep in mind, my anxiety and shit, I'm going from like an 8 to an 11 to a 9 to an 11. So on one of the like dips down to a 7 or an 8, I made this joke to myself. And I said, man, this is when I would have prayed. Because who wouldn't? Anybody with a gun to their head, with a threat to their life, with a deep fear of anything, any circumstance, will naturally do that. We'll say, hey, there's anybody up there, anybody. Bruh, I know we haven't talked in a long time, but seriously, can you help me here? I think that's natural. And I kind of had this this joke in my head because, you know, I, I trained myself out of the habit of prayer, the idea of seeking a message or help or starting a dialogue with a higher power. I had trained that out of myself completely. But you know, when I think back about my relationship with God from age five or six years old, when I would have told you that I became a Christian, until 18, 19, 20, when those beliefs sort of disintegrated for me, you know, that's 15 years or so of a conscious relationship with God as I understood him. And when I went to rehab and had this existential crisis, I had very much mourned the death of God. Because I had come to the conclusion that this relationship was not real. That this person was merely an imaginary friend. And every conversation that I had had with God, every prayer that ever came from me, was to no one. No one was ever listening. And so two hours into this horrible experience, I have this thought to myself. And I kind of say, man, this is when I would have prayed. And immediately... This external consciousness that I had not interfaced with or interacted with at all during these last two hours made itself known. And it said, you know, you can, right? And I immediately had all all of these truths slam into my being. Now, because we are in a linear time realm here, I... I got to tell you these things one at a time, but many of these things became true instantly. And so I entered into this dialogue with this mushroom consciousness, one that I've been familiar with before and talked with before. But this thing said to me that the same God that I had prayed to 
from age five or six until my early teens. That that was the same thing that I'm attempting to interface with now. And what I had done was I had condemned this concept of a higher power, this concept of a greater consciousness. I had condemned it because I didn't like the box that it was put in when it was presented to me as a child. And the familiarity that I had from childhood in this relationship with God returned. It felt exactly the same, like going into your childhood bedroom the same. And this consciousness that I'm in a dialogue with immediately removed all of the chaos and that storm that I had been in for two hours just fucking went away. And this presence wrapped me up. And it immediately brought my attention my attention to my mother, who's a wonderful woman, a wonderful mother. And it said, it said, Adam, you know you condemned her and you judged her for doing exactly what you're doing right now. You, right now, are attempting to interface with a higher power, with a greater consciousness, in order to improve yourself. Because you think there's something else here. Beyond the physical realm that you live in, you think there's something else that can help you. What do you think your mother was doing when she introduced you to God through the system of Christianity? What do you think everyone is doing in every religion all through human history? What do you think they're doing? They're doing what you're doing right now. They're making an effort to be introspective. They're making an effort to seek help from a greater consciousness. And I felt such such a sense of shame. And that I had faulted my own mother, my Christian friends, family members. I had faulted them for the box that they had put God within. I didn't like that box. I found flaws within that box. And I still do find flaws within that, that belief system. Undoubtedly, there are flaws there. But I had held that against them. And I had believed in a very egotistical way that I knew better that I had figured out something that they hadn't and that they were behind me in some way. And in doing so, I had thrown out the concept of spirituality. I had hardened myself to the concept of a higher power of any kind at all, however it might be defined. And so in dialogue with this consciousness, there were many emotional phases. One of them was a guilt from this idea that I had like disowned a parent, not my actual mother, who I've always had a great relationship with, um, that I had disowned whatever this higher consciousness was. And I remember screaming, I said, I mourned your death, I thought you were dead. I thought you were dead. And like a loving parent, very much like a, like a father-son vibe, it said, no son, 
I'm not dead. I've been here the whole time. And that silliness sort of came out. And it said, um, you know, I'm eternal. Uh, (laughs) Not going anywhere. And really, the last 10 years or so of you denying my existence, disowning me in whatever way you have, is just the blink of an eye. That's nothing. Eternal patience. And so as this dialogue with this thing continued, it expressed to me that, that all throughout human history, every religious ceremony you could think of, whether they involved drugs or not, every religion you could, you could ever think of, or a vast majority of them, are simply people's best attempt to interface with this higher consciousness. And it is no different than what I did this morning. When you drank that tea, what do you think you're doing? You are using your knowledge to the best, you know, to the best of your ability. You're using a tool and you're attempting to interface with something bigger than you to get a message to improve your life. This is Christianity. This is Islam. This is Scientology. At least it is the fundamental desire of these religions or systematic beliefs. And it does not mean that you can't find flaws in all of those three examples, plenty of flaws in all of them, philosophical flaws that I could sit down and still argue with you to this day. But that is separate from what I had done, which is condemn these people for their best efforts. And so I felt a a tremendous shame and a guilt for a period of time in this experience. And I remember screaming, I'm sorry, I am so sorry that I held that against my mother, I held it against my friends, I held it against family members. Because I believed for a period of time that if what happened to me, you impart Christianity on a child and they grow up and they learn they learn enough things about the world that they, they subsequently reject that belief system, then what had happened to me will happen to them. They're fucked because I almost killed myself by putting alcohol in my body to cope with the damage that I believed Christianity had done to me. Now that's not the whole story there. There's more to it, and I hope to revisit that another day with you. But the irony of having an ego problem within a certain context of a YouTube video, people had made certain comments that that made me feel threatened, and then turning to this consciousness through the use of psychedelics and saying, you know, I have an ego problem and I'd like to, I'd like help with that. I'd like to get some perspective on that. And how fucking classic of a psychedelic move that it would say, well, you do have an ego problem. You're right there, but it's not the one you thought you had. So it's like you look in the mirror and it's like, well, hold on a second. You're looking at it from the wrong angle. We're gonna twist that mirror fucking over here. And then, then it hits you. So in attempting to solve an ego problem, I had an ego problem that I did not know existed. One where I was still harboring some belief that I had figured out things that other people hadn't. And the irony that I am willing to seek this higher power through psychedelics, but not lending credit to my mother for praying, for teaching me how to pray. Not lending lending credit to my Christian friends who go to church every Sunday to seek a message from a higher power to improve themselves. I held that against them while doing the same thing myself in a different context. 
That is a fucking ego problem if I've ever heard one. And so this dialogue with this consciousness lasted for about an hour and a half as these things were being explained to me. And then it just let me go. It let me go. And it was like as soon as all of this had began, it was over. Whole experience was a little under four hours. And I weirdly felt not traumatized. You know, towards the end of that dialogue, I had gotten a little bit of clarity on what happened. And I asked this consciousness, I said, well, what the fuck was the last two hours, the first two hours of this experience? What, what the fuck was that? Why would you hold me down and, and just fucking beat me aimlessly? What was that? What, what did that have to do with this message here? And it said, that was all the shit you put between me and you. And like a, like a puppy, I had to drag you by the back of the neck and show you what you had done. It also told me that as ugly as that all was, it was precisely what you were able to handle. No more, no less. And I had felt that during this experience, that this is right at my threshold of psychological tolerance. If this gets any harder, I really don't know what to do if it gets harder than this. And this consciousness made that clear. This is exactly what you were able to handle. No more, no less. It's right in this range where you got it. You got this. And I felt that reassurance, like a parent reassurance, saying, I know you, what you can handle and what you can't. And this is very hard. I know it's hard, but you got it. And I did. Just fucking barely. And you know, another thing I asked this consciousness in this, la this latter dialogue of the trip, um, I said, what do I call you? Because I called you G-O-D God. I thought your son was named Jesus, and I thought he was sent, you know, through the Virgin Mary to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to pay for the sins of humanity. I had the whole story. But man, that certainly doesn't seem to be the whole story. What do I call you? And he said, many people call me different things. I am something different to everyone. But you, son, get to call me the great teacher. To you, I am the great teacher. That is how this consciousness identified itself. And towards the very end of this thing, you know, this experience, it, it, it gave me a sense of peace. That this was all okay. That its feelings were not hurt. That despite my abandonment of this relationship with this external consciousness, um, that it wasn't offended. That it welcomed me back. That it loved me. And that everything was going to be just fine. And I exited this experience with no trauma, despite the fucking car accident that I had been in mentally. I didn't feel, I didn't feel damaged at all, which was surprising. I thought I was going to have a rough time coming back from this one. And I didn't. I didn't. It was that smooth. And so I guess the question now after hearing about this experience and the deep meaning that came with it, as I perceived that meaning, you can take something different from it if you want. You know, where does, where does this leave me now? 
Because part of a psychedelic experience is not just the story of the psychedelic experience. It is also in you processing that experience over the following weeks. It's very, very common that you would have to spend some time sitting with your thoughts um, and really interpreting what you think happened here and what conclusions do you want to come to from having gone through this experience. And I do have a few things that I have figured out from this. Number one is a massive infusion of empathy. I do look at Christians specifically differently after this experience. And while I may have philosophical gripes with the absolute truth, the nature of absolute truth that comes with Christianity, I don't fault them for their attempt. As a matter of fact, I feel that their attempt to interface with this higher power, to seek self-improvement, is in many ways has been revalidated for me. I understand. I understand. And in many ways, I do the same thing in a different context. I have also learned that one thing I believe about Christianity, even though I do not identify as a Christian, is that one of the, the flaws with it, this is not a judgment on Christians, one of the flaws with it is that, that it is common for Christians to believe that the Bible contains pretty much everything you would need to know about God, or the character of God, or the nature of God. But I've learned that God, as we understand him, this entity, external consciousness, whatever you want to call it, I don't fucking know, it doesn't fit inside of one religious text. I think that there could certainly be elements of biblical text or other ancient religious texts that could be insightful in help in helping us understand the nature of God. This omnipresent creator, creator, who fucking knows, you know, that lives outside of time and space, who created time and space in itself. I think that those books can be very helpful in allowing us to interface with this, this greater power. But the reality is that God cannot possibly fit inside of a religious text of any kind. And see, the thing is, if you can conclude with me or in some way acknowledge that perhaps God doesn't fit in your box or my box, that we're all just making our best attempt to understand and to quantify what this higher power might be, if we were to take all of our boxes, all of our systematic beliefs, which we use to sort of try and quantify and paint a picture of what God is, if we were to add all of them together and get this one collective picture of what we think God might be, it's still not even fucking close. How could it be? How could it be? Words within the English language, or Aramaic, they can't possibly, possibly encompass everything that you need to know about the nature of the center of the universe, or that higher power, or that greater consciousness, or God, or whatever label you want to put on this thing, whatever box you want to put the concept of God inside of, you can't possibly believe that your religious doctrine, however accurate you may find it to be, you can't possibly believe that that is all that you need to know about God. It can't be. That God exists outside of all of those things. He exists outside of all of those stories, of all of those metaphors, of all of these attempts to put God in a box. Now, you don't fault people for the box that they put God within. That's what I learned, and I had been doing that. But it made me feel more human in a year when we all need to feel more human. It made me feel as though, over the course of human history, man, we all have a lot more in common than we've realized. 
And despite wars being fought over religion, how fucking ironic that we're all trying to interface with the same thing. How ironic is that? And I had that irony manifest itself in my own life and in my own beliefs. And to be free of that after this psychedelic experience is just so beautiful. To be infused with empathy as somebody who doesn't identify as a highly empathetic person. I'm not a psychopath. I have empathy. But um, to just get an infusion of that feels wonderful. It feels wonderful. It made me feel closer to my mom. It felt like I had some... A little bit of hate in there. A little bit of bitterness would be a better word. Not hate. A little bit of bitterness. A little bit of judginess that got scraped clean. And man, that feels awesome. Now to clarify, because this is a very much a, a get to know you podcast, I don't subscribe to any religious belief necessarily, though I, I undoubtedly, um, I live closer to Christianity or I adhere closer to the moral values of Christianity now than I ever have before. And you know, I exclude, I exclude prayer from that. I'm not a praying person, though I'm certainly more likely to, um, my version of prayer would have been taking psychedelics, and being honest with you. Uh, that's how I would seek help from a higher power. When I say I live closer to Christianity now, or adhere closer to those religious rules than ever before, what I mean is that I have, I have learned, relearned, um, that there is value in things like sexual morality, Things that I would have described to you not long ago as, I mean, 10 years ago, you know, I would have described them to you as useless tradition. And I, I just don't believe that in many contexts anymore. Sexual morality is a hyper-specific example, but it is one example where um, I get it now a lot more than I used to. And we'll get into this in future episodes. I really don't want to touch this topic necessarily because I don't think I have the time today or the mental capacity after telling that story to really expand some of those ideas with you. But yeah, man, religion and Christianity specifically is a huge part of my backstory and my relationship to Christianity and to Christians is very much a part of who I am despite not identifying as a Christian now. But as my values have adjusted and shifted over time, um, over the last decade especially, my views on, on Christianity have, have undoubtedly shifted. My views on Christians have undoubtedly shifted in ways that I believe are predominantly positive. And so I know this story is a heavy one. And for those of you who are in no way, shape, or form interested in psychedelics, who have no understanding of what a psychedelic experience might be like, or you had a you had an idea of what a psychedelic experience is before listening to this podcast. First of all, thank you for having the willingness to entertain a monologue from this guy who is sharing things that probably don't resonate with you in the same way they do with somebody else. You're listening to things that don't inherently match your own belief system. Um, and that should be applauded and celebrated, man. That's awesome. I hope this has been insightful. I don't think I get to tell you if it has or hasn't, but I hope it has been. And so I thank you. I thank you for giving me the time of day, or at least, uh, you know, an hour, hour and a half of your day. I really appreciate it. And to those who have some sort of familiarity with the psychedelic realm and who have listened to trip reports before, um, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this. And I would love to hear your, um, your thoughts on if you have ever experienced something similar to this before. Um, because in researching this concept of psilocybin and God... This is not a, a tremendously uncommon experience. You can find stories and people who have had 
relatively similar experiences to this one. And for me, it was just so incredibly powerful. I would put this up there with one of the most powerful psychedelic experiences that I have ever had. And it's been a wonderful, beautiful thing in my life. And I was so excited to share this with you that I had to do it twice. I had to do it this second time just to get it right, to make this a more measured story. You know, in future episodes, I have a lot more things about myself that I would love to share with you. Many, many, many more things. But I wanna be measured here in the same way that you should be measured as you get to know somebody else. You can't just dump every single fucking thing that you believe, every element of your personality on somebody. And so when it comes to politics, that's probably the sketchiest one um, to really dive into. And I think the problem that I had in that the first episode, first time I recorded this, was that I touched on some of my political views, but I didn't expand them in any way. And that gives people the opportunity to fill in the blanks. And I didn't want that to happen because I'm a fan of talking things out. I'm a fan of defending your own beliefs and taking the time um, to really expand some of these ideas. And so for as much shit is in this episode, as much as you have hopefully learned about me in this episode, um, I think we can leave it here. And I, uh, I very much hope to tap into some other some other areas of my personality as we get a little bit further into this um, into this experiment. So thank you guys. Thank you for spending your time with me. Thank you for um, having a willingness to hear some weird shit. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. This has been All In With Adam, episode one. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I'll see you soon. Bye.